we were basically just praying. So myself and Ellie Chalice are both on Adams. So we purposely put our time slots dur- like at the pool during the races, <laughs> just in case on the odd chance we were randomly tested. Oh, wow. In case because if it was at the pool, then it would have counted. Mm. Um, so we were kind of just praying that some drug tester would randomly turn up, but unfortunately they didn't, which means that the world record doesn't count, but it counts as a European record and a British record. <laughs> Welcome to the Propulsion Swimming Podcast where we aim to give swimming the coverage and publicity it deserves. Every week, we celebrate the sport we love with amazing special guests and topics from around the swimming pool. And now, here are your hosts, Scott and Dan. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Propulsion Swimming Podcast. I'm your host Scott and joining me as always is my good friend Dan. And as usual for this podcast, we are talking all things British swimming with a name whom everyone should really be a lot more familiar with than they most probably are. Yeah, I mean we're joined by a fantastic athlete this week and like Scott said, one that everyone in the swimming world should know and outside of swimming actually. Um, Scott will talk to you guys through some of her credentials in a second when we bring her on. She's had some incredible achievements and I feel like she's got more to add to her tally as well. Yeah. Now, before we get into this week's conversation, just a little gentle reminder, if you are one of our regular listeners on a podcast providing platform like Apple or Spotify, if you could go ahead and leave us a little review, we would greatly appreciate it. Not only does it help this podcast grow, but it will also help kind of just swimming podcasts in general and push them into the wider reaches of the sporting world. Right then, without further ado, please welcome onto the podcast Tokyo 2020 Paralympic champion, 10-time world champion and European champion Tully Kearney. Tully, thank you very much for joining us this week. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm all right. Thanks. How are you guys? Yeah, we're good. It's, uh, it's Monday when we're recording this. It already feels like a very, very busy week, <laughs> but we will it does. soldier on through the dark nights. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help when it's getting cold as well, you know, so... But we're good. I think we're, we, we get quite G'd up for these podcasts, don't we? So mm. we're, we'll find the energy in literally about five seconds time. <laughs> <laughs> so for this podcast today, I think it would be really good for our audience to get to know you just that little bit better. So why don't we start off with your classification in the sport of para swimming? So you swim as an S5, SB4 and SM5 swimmer. So for our listeners who aren't aware with the classification system, what is... What is your disability in the sport and how does it affect your swimming? So I was born with mild spastic diplegia cerebral palsy, which basically means that my left side is weaker and the muscles in my lower body are really tight, so it affects movement. Um, and then as I started to get older, I started to get some symptoms that weren't typical of cerebral palsy. And after a few years of tests, I was diagnosed with a neurological movement disorder called dystonia. So I have generalized dystonia um, and there's many different types like cerebral palsy and it affects everyone in different ways. Um, but for me, it causes involuntary muscle spasms and contractures. So it limits my range of movement and my ability to move. So I think the easiest way to explain it to someone is if you can imagine you want to activate your hamstring. So for me, if I'm trying to activate my hamstring, my quad also activates. So it makes my leg really difficult to move. Okay. Oh, wow. And does, that must be quite a, a weird thing to, I don't know, if you, you focus on activating one muscle, but then another one contracts. I, I, can you describe the feeling of that? Because, of course, we have no idea. Does it feel um, weird? 
Well, it's like you've got two muscles fighting against each other, so it's it is quite weird. But I found like with dystonia, if I focus on moving, the worse my dystonia gets. So I try and not. Ah. So I try and focus on contracting a muscle, but also not thinking about it at the same time. Oh, okay, so it's a lot of muscle memory and reflex kind of movements. Yeah. Hmm. So how does it affect you in the pool then? So compared to an athlete like me and Dan, what would your training look like with your condition? I wouldn't say we were athletes, but... (laughs) (laughs) This has changed a lot over the years. So my dystonia is progressive, so it's gotten a lot worse as I got older. So I actually started as a S9 swimmer. And as my dystonia got worse, I dropped down classifications. So previously... Um, up until about 2016, um, I was quite mildly affected as an S9. So the, in the physical category, there's S1 to S10. So S10 is a really minimal impairment. So it might be someone with the lower part of their limb missing, a club foot, mild cerebral palsy, um, part of their hand missing. So it's a very minimal impairment compared to an able-bodied competitor. Um, so as a nine, obviously I was quite a minimally impaired athlete. So then it basically obviously was weakness on the left side um, and I didn't have a full leg kick. So I could still kick, I could still dive and tumble turn, but I just didn't have a full leg kick. And this especially affected me on things like breaststroke. Um, and as it's got worse, it's got to the point now um, with where my dystonia is at that I have no use of my legs in the water. So I start in the water using a starting device. Um, I'm very lucky, I think, because of all the years of swimming, of the muscle memory, I can still tumble turn, um, but I can't kick. So now I'm just upper body and my upper body is also impaired. So is it g- gradually going to get worse and worse as well? Um, probably. And it's, it's kind of one of the unknowns. With um, There seems to be a typical trend with developing dystonia or generalised dystonia specifically at a young age, like kind of like the age I did around 13, 14. There seems to be a period where you get a massive decline for five years. So if it's over five years, you're rapidly getting worse and then it kind of stabilizes. So I haven't rapidly got worse for quite a few years now. I've been fairly stable just with some minor subtle changes, but I think it's kind of expected that slowly over time, I'll get a couple of like more changes, but nothing dramatic, hopefully. Mm -hmm. So when you say there's subtle little changes that you're doing, is that reducing training and just concentrating on racing every now and again? Is it, focusing on a different sport that isn't swimming um kind of all of it so okay obviously with having a high level of impairment um and with having a lot more muscles that contract when i don't want them to my fatigue's very high um so we've had to adapt the way i can train how much i can physically do in a day is drastically different so i went from like nine or ten two hour sessions a week in the pool to three or four um like one hour, 45 minutes to one hour sessions. Um, and I haven't actually been able to do that for a while. So it's, you know, it's been, it was quite a dramatic change. It was very hard for me to get used to that. And mm. for me, I like, it was, I struggled because I didn't feel like an athlete because I wasn't able, I'd always, like all these years it had been drawn into my head that to be a swimmer, you've got to swim every day. You've got to do like doubles every day. You've got to do all this stuff and I can't do it anymore and that was really hard for me to get my head around is that how can I feel like an athlete when I can't train um Mm. and that was kind of where the athletics came in so I had a really good friend of mine who I met at university who's also a sports scholar she's a paracyclist she's amazing girl Hannah Dines and she kept saying for me for years 
oh, you should come and try frame running. It's this really cool, like, adaptive sport. It's new and, oh, it's really exciting. And I just looked at it like, I'm a swimmer. Why do I want to do athletics? Swimmers <laughs> like, don't run. No. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked at it like, I've got, like, because she also has cerebral palsy, but I just looked at it like, you do realise I'm a full-time wheelchair user. Why would I be running? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And basically, at the end of 2018, I decided to have bilateral shoulder surgery. So I couldn't swim for about six months. And that was really tough for me. I think I'm a typical athlete that I'm quite crazy. Like I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie and I love training and competing. So for me, the coping mechanism for my disabilities was to swim because in the water I feel free. I don't feel disabled. Like as a kid, I could keep up with kids my age and that's kind of why I fell in love with it. So because that was taken away for so long, I was like, well, I need to find a way of exercising. One, just to keep fit and keep movement, which is really important with um, neuromuscular disabilities like cerebral palsy and dystonia because if I'm not using the muscles I'll lose the ability so it's really important to keep going some level of fitness um, and I thought well what's the harm in you know going down to the track and seeing what this is all about so Hannah stored her frame um, at a track nearby in Stockport so she took me down to when the wheelchair racing club were training and basically got me on the track with them and I just absolutely fell in love with it like I've never been able to run and all of a sudden on this frame, I can literally like run for miles. So it was just really, really cool. Um, so originally it was just to get over surgery. Um, and then I kind of realized that actually this is really helping my fitness. And for me, moving my legs is so much harder than moving my arms because of how stiff my muscles are, that my heart rate is really high compared to what it is in the pool. So it's actually a really easy way for me to build up cardio- cardiovascular fitness compared to in the water. I've still got quite a lot of issues, especially with my right shoulder. Um, So unfortunately, I can't train very much in the water because it gets really irritated. And Mm. I can't really swim at speed without it getting irritated, which then impacts training. So all the speed work and high-intensity work is generally done on land. Mm, Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you about injuries. Um, With your disability of muscles contracting and involuntary movements, do you get injured often? Is it a regular occurrence? Um. So I was quite lucky in my early career that I didn't really pick up any major injuries um, until I dislocated my right shoulder at the trials for 2012 Paralympic Games, um, which again t- took me a long time to recover from. Um, and I was told I probably wouldn't get back to swimming after that and I'd need extensive surgery, but somehow I managed to avoid that. Um, and then it wasn't really until 2015 that I started getting ongoing issues. And I think I, that was when I started to need to use a wheelchair more in, in the last, um, like probably since about the end of 2016, start of 2017, I've been a full-time wheelchair user, so I need my arms for everything, which obviously increases the load for your arms. Mm. Um, so I have had the last, since I had shoulder surgery, I've kind of gone through this trend of, I think it's quite common for athletes, you fix one thing and you find loads of other issues. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I really struggle with um, my tendons and obviously there's damage from dislocating my shoulder, damage from swimming all these years from the repetitive overhead movements and needing to use my arms 24-7 to get around. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've had multiple, multiple injuries. There was a point, I think in 2019, I was in the water for a week, out for a month, in in for a few days, out for three months. I was constantly out of the water with injuries. So how how lucky do you feel that you found this love for essentially frame running which has given you this fitness base which you can very quickly fall back on 
Yeah, I think I'm extremely lucky. I think it's quite rare for people with progressive disabilities to get back into the sport after, but then to be actually, to actually be able to find a way to train in a different sport to help your sport, I think it's quite unique. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful to Hannah because without her, like, there's no way I would have figured that out. I would never have thought of, of trying it. And it's not something that my coaches would have immediately gone to, like, oh, yeah, let's try cross-training. And actually, it took me a long time to convince them that it actually helped. <laughs> It's completely out of the swimming sphere whatsoever, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. whereabouts are you training right now? Because I think I've seen on social media you, you're kind of between Loughborough and Manchester. Is it is it a bit of a complicated situation? Um, yeah, so obviously there's been a lot of changes within British swimming. And um, mm. last season my coach of about seven years was made redundant and there was a lot of changes um, with the merge between all of the disciplines of British swimming and a restructure so at that point we didn't have a solid coach based in Manchester at the performance centre there we had coaches that were traveling and rotating and there was just obviously when you've got you've not got one set coach there's a lack of communication and I got quite a bad injury so I ended up going to Loughborough for two weeks because um, injured athletes aren't allowed in training camps and when you're at a national centre if, if, if there's a training camp everyone goes away there's no just one that can train you so I went to Loughborough and I loved it so much that I asked to stay so I ended up staying there for about three months Um, (laughs) but unfortunately the Paris Swim lead coach there left Um, so I've come back to Manchester temporarily until December and trying to decide what I want to do Ah, temporarily I was going to ask you do you have a rough idea of going back to Loughborough or are you aiming to stay in Manchester do you have a rough idea of what to do Um, I keep going back and forth I think for me it's I've got to decide like if I want to prioritise performance or mental health. Um, I generally struggle in Man- Manchester's an environment that I struggle with. Um, there's a lot that happened pre-real, obviously all my disability getting worse, but also we had um, we had a bit of a horrible situation in the centre with the way the coach was. Um, so from that, I actually was diagnosed with PTSD which for a long time that like, I was in denial about. I was like, how can I have PTSD? I'm just like, you know, just from a training environment. Um, but I know over time, like, it's quite obvious to me now and I've accepted it, but I'm always going to struggle in the Manchester environment because of that. And obviously I've worked on it. There's the setup and the environment is very different now. Um, but it's always going to be something that I struggle with and generally struggle with Manchester. So in Loughborough, I'm just way happier. It's just, I can't, being in a national centre, you've got everything you could ever want or need on site. So obviously going to Loughborough and swimming for Loughborough Uni, we're just trying to figure out how much support I could actually get there and if it's actually feasible to for me to, to go there. And it is basically, do I leave and take a risk that I won't get everything that I need performance-wise, but I'm going to be really happy? And over the summer, I think I've shown that being happy can make me swim way quicker. Or do I stay somewhere where I can get everything I need, but I'm going to be potentially miserable? Oh, man. It sounds like a tough choice, but I think in my head, I think I'd know, I think mental, like we speak so much on this podcast about mental health always comes first for us when it comes to Mm. whatever we're doing. If we need like just two weeks off the podcast, we just take two weeks off the podcast. Um, A happy environment is is key. So what what do you think would be missing then from the Loughborough environment if you were to move there? Because it is a national center in the sense of the able body but not yep. for the, the Paragos. So what is no. the difference then? Um, well, because obviously there's three national centres for British swimming, Bath, Loughborough and Manchester. 
Um, Manchester is the only one where para-swimmers are currently allowed, but it will be opening up soon to able-bodied swimmers as well. But it's para-swimmers aren't allowed in Bath or Loughborough currently. Um, so moving to Loughborough, being under Loughborough University. So obviously leaving a national centre, you've got everything you could ever want. Your coach is a British swimming coach. Every time you go away, you've got the benefit of your coach being there and not having to have sets written and, you know, have it um, given to you by a different coach. So obviously you'd lose, you'd lose that contact. Um, I think just things like we get, we get so much stuff. So we get soft tissue therapy provided for us in Manchester um, twice a week at the minute, three times a week because we don't have a physio because he left. But um, so we, we don't. So, have... so you couldn't get that in Loughborough, even though um, I can't get body. soft tissue unless I pay for it, and then I have to pay oh, for training okay. fees to train at Loughborough Uni because I'm not at the uni. So it, it just basically it's just more cost. Blimey, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the rehab stuff as well because obviously each para swimmer will have their own specific like physio stuff as well, and that mm-hmm. wouldn't be available at Loughborough, I imagine. And it's I can't um, I can't imagine it's cheap, you know. So I'm quite lucky because I'm a funded athlete. I can get it through the English Institute of Sport. But again, because in Manchester, we have everything in-house. We don't have to use the EIS. So basically the way the English Institute of Sport works is that each sport has to buy into like each individual area. So because there aren't any para swimmers in Loughborough, we don't buy into it. So it it just means that the pot of money would have to be spread throughout everyone on the programme. And it's just adding an extra area for it to be spread through. Oh man! I mean, we we saw at the Commonwealth Games this summer that there there was an integration of the para athletes within kind of the able body. It wasn't just the schedule; it was like the full squads and the full training. So maybe that needs to happen a bit more often. I know you guys have your own specialized training, but there is the resources there. I think people like. I think some coaches are a little bit worried about para athletes because, like, understandably, they don't fully understand some of our disabilities and they don't want to injure us or, you know, do something that's wrong. But um, especially for someone like me with a neurological impairment, there's a lot of people with cerebral palsy over the years that have been overtrained because they've been treated like an amputee or an able-bodied athlete, which is obviously very different. So for someone that's got a visual impairment, an amputee or a learning disability, the rest of their body will work perfectly normally. Whereas someone with a neurological in- impairment, so the cerebral palsy, a brain injury, or someone that's had a stroke, any um MS, anything like that, none of like nothing works a hundred percent, so that it takes us longer to recover. And and generally, like with cerebral palsy, it takes sometimes it takes us a bit longer to get up to where we can actually swim at full speed in training sessions and things. So it's a little bit adapted. So I think some people just get a little bit nervous sometimes. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's learning the disability because I remember we spoke to Will Perry and we were saying, well, surely things must be different because, you know, the, the limbs are shorter. And he was like, no, I push myself just as hard as an able body swim. I swim 10 times a week. Mm. I'm in a gym X amount of times. And he was like, yeah, I eat just as much and everything is just as normal. But of course, for someone with cerebral palsy, like yourself and others, the, the training will be have to be adapted to make it easier, I suppose, or reduced in some sort of way. But it's just learning the dis- different disabilities and going on CPD courses or something like that. I think that's what's required. So the biggest thing for me is, as my conditions got worse is that I I struggle to swim back-to-back days, so I swim every other day to give me the rest, and then I do gym on, on my non-swim days, so we just balance things really well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I hope the situation sorts itself out because, I mean, it's a really tough decision, and I'm not going to mm. make that for you, obviously. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I don't know. I kind of wish it wasn't an all-or-nothing kind of in terms of national centre setups. 
especially for you para guys because the the para swimming in this country is exceptional and that knowledge mm-hmm. rather than being one hub surely it could be spread out a little bit better i think well, that's might the just have to be the you. first summer to do it you know <laughs> i think like over the over uh quite a few years i think that's what the plan is to have all the centers open up to both but obviously yeah. that's going to take a lot of time and i know loughborough is a bit trickier because of the loughborough uni squads the public the general uni slots the pool is used frequently so having extra mm-hmm. pool slots isn't as easy as where at the minute obviously the manchester quack center is being redone for the world championships but usually there's we have a lot more free time in our downstairs pools so adding an able-bodied um center to to the para center isn't, isn't really that much hassle to add on mm. oh man um if anyone hasn't noticed so far from going through this podcast you've you've been through a lot of ups and downs in your career so far um i think there was did you withdraw from your first para games in rio or before it yeah. happened um only then to qualify at tokyo and not just qualify but win golds hit world records um it must seem like a bit of an emotional roller coaster at times oh yeah it certainly has um i think withdrawing from rio like i never thought i'd swim again never thought i'd be able to go to Paralympic games i just thought that and at that point my career was over and the way that, that my dystonia progressed i had to relearn how to live independently how to do everything else myself um mm with my increased level of impairment. So at that point, swimming wasn't really in my mind. Um, and then I eventually got back into it. And I think the turning point is when I went to the European Championships in 2018, like surprised everyone by qualifying um, and won a gold and a bronze. And I think that kind of really opened my mind that actually maybe maybe I've got a chance, maybe I can still go to Paralympic Games. And so had the surgery, which was really difficult to recover from and um, surprised everyone um, well, not my coach. My coach knew what I'd do. He always, he always used to come up to me and he always used to tell me, like, I don't want to put any pressure on you. He told me in 2015, he came up to me before and I was feeling a bit disheartened. I'd only qualified for the relay. I didn't actually qualify, didn't actually hit the qualifying target for Worlds. Um, and he said to me, you do realise if you swim well, you could be like the highest medal earner for GB. And I looked at him like, are you crazy? And it came true. <laughs> so like he, was, he always just knew, knew, like never underestimated, he knew exactly what I could do. Um, so that that obviously really helped me and going out towards Tokyo I was so nervous because I had to withdraw a week before Rio and I had an injury going into Tokyo um, quite a bad injury and I was really struggling so it was in my head I was like oh my god like what if I have to withdraw again what if I don't get there and I wasn't really excited until we actually landed in Tokyo and then I was like oh I've made it to Tokyo surely nothing can go wrong now (laughs) (laughs) got the monkey off your back sort of thing yeah so then I started to get more excited (laughs) God, we were right with the emotional roller coaster then. It really is up and down all the time then. It's not just for the Paralympics. It's almost every day with training. Like It yeah. must be immensely fatiguing as well as physically fatiguing as well. Yeah, it's it's quite frustrating. With the nature of having a condition like dystonia, I can be quite different day to day. Um, I can be amazing on like a Monday and then I get to the pool on Friday and I can't clear the water. So... Yeah, it's. I think it's it's difficult for the coaches to understand as well, especially working with yeah. new coaches, because um, they look at me and they're like, "What has happened in like two days?" Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's been frustrating. It's been a learning curve, um, but I think for me as well, like it's it's kind of it's kind of shown me that you know so many people have you know certain disabilities or have issues in their life where they kind of put limits on themselves like oh well I'm not going to be able to do this now or you know this is never going to happen or like what's the point in trying 
and I think I've kind of proven that obviously it's, it took me like five years longer and it looked very different and it was really difficult to get there but obviously I still achieved my goal which was like to be honest I wasn't really caring about medals I just wanted to be able to call myself a Paralympian <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and obviously I achieved that so I think for me it was kind of an eye-opener um, especially to get the word out about Destonia which is where I became patron of Destonia UK which is the only UK-based charity um, to help people with the condition of Destonia and just to like show others that you know it, it is still possible yeah, I mean, there's so many points in the journey that you've told us so far where you've you've literally said, I wasn't meant to swim again, sort of thing. And yeah. yet you've kept going and it, yeah, five or six years later at Tokyo, you're, you're winning golds. It's incredible. It's a journey, isn't it? Amazing. <laughs> um, I'm going to take you back to another little bit of a roller coaster in last summer. Now, it caught our eye at the... Uh, the British Summer Champs in Sheffield, where you set an unbelievable world record. I think you smashed the mark by over a second, if I'm correct. But unfortunately, because there was no doping control there, the world record doesn't stand. It's it's a very odd one in the fact that, obviously, you're a world-class swimmer. You're there, you're racing. There is a chance that you could set world records because you've set them in the past. And yet, because this it's almost an arbitrary thing that wasn't set in place for you. It doesn't count. What what was your reaction to that? Um, to be honest, I was really disappointed. Um, at first, like it was about a month after the world championships and generally because of my shoulder, I struggled to recover after racing. So, I mean, I was injured during Tokyo, but it took me 20 weeks to get back in the water after Tokyo. So I wasn't really expecting to be able to race, but luckily we managed to get me back in and, I wasn't expecting to, you know, swim quick, but the head coach said to me, like, I want you to move it on from Worlds. And at Worlds, I broke three world records. So I was like, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was the it was the night the night before it started. Obviously, you've got the technical meeting. And one of the Loughborough coaches, because I was still based in Loughborough, then phoned me and was like, they're not accepting world records. And I was like, what? So I didn't realise that the rule is actually slightly different for the Olympic guys and the Paralympic side. So... For us in Paris, if you break a world record, you don't. it's not you that individually has to be tested. It's anyone during that meet. So if a single person is tested randomly during the competition, then it will count. Whereas for the Olympic side, it's the person that breaks the world record that has to be tested. So it is quite different. And I don't know why oh, it's wow. different. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> like, at, like at all. But okay, yeah. So I think, like, obviously... From the able-bodied side, all the guys that would be capable of breaking world records would be at Commonwealth Games. So it was only really the para side where it would be an issue. So there were two of us, uh, myself and Ellie Chalice, that were potentially going to break world records. So I know um, British para swimming tried really hard to contact them um, to try and get someone from UCAD down. Um, and when they were advised that they couldn't send anyone because they were too busy with the Commonwealth because it was a couple of weeks, well, not even, I think it was about started about maybe a week or so before the Commonwealth. Yeah, it was a good um, week. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, so yeah. obviously most of the teams were in the country and they wanted to do like pre-competition testing and, you know, like the random testing they do. So mm. the next option for British Women was to contact one of the private. So if, if UCAD can't come, you can then contact a private drug testing company and pay for them to come to the event. Um, so they tried that. And again, they said, oh, we can't because we're too busy with the Commonwealth. Um, so then what we tried next is I'm actually on Adam's uh, so whereabouts. So, um, I get randomly drug tested in and out of competition. So we were like, well, I'm frequently drug tested. Can we go off that? And they were like, absolutely not. So, 
um, we were basically just praying. So myself and Ellie Charlotte are both on Adams. So we purposely put our time slots dur- like at the pool during the races, <laughs> just in case on the odd chance we were randomly tested. Oh, wow. In case because if it was at the pool, then it would have counted. Mm. Um, so we were kind of just praying that some drug tester would randomly turn up, but unfortunately they didn't, which means that the world record doesn't count, but it counts as a European record and a British record. <laughs> What's so the British record is faster than the world record. <laughs> yeah, That's utterly oh, madness. Man. Did it take a Did it take a while for you to get over it? Well, actually, in fact, did, how did you get over it? I think for me, the biggest frustration was I'd been working so well with um, Gareth McNary in Loughborough, who was the paralee coach, and it was my first. So I raced obviously at Worlds, but he, he didn't come. So it was the first time where he was there and he could see me break world records, and um, he also was finishing his career as a swim coach and going to lecturing so I really wanted like oh, wow. that to be under you know the Send last off. thing that happens is that yeah. his one of his athletes sets a world record and then the fact that it doesn't count and I was just like oh so I think I was more frustrated not that it didn't count as a world record because obviously I'm, I'm going to beat it again hopefully but it was more that it was the sentiment of like the only time I get to race under under Gareth and mm. uh, in in the UK under a British meet and it won't count Oh man, that's a really selfless attitude, actually. That's, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you, you say it gives you confidence that you, you can smash it again. No yeah. doubt now. I, like, I wasn't really... I had I had an injury going into Worlds, um, which is why I was in Loughborough. And we worked really well through it. And I was kind of... Wasn't really sure where I'd be at, but I'd been... We kind of changed things up. So we did the opposite of what we did during Tokyo. So in the water, instead of trying... So before Tokyo, we, we did low-level um, volume, but we just tried to really push the intensity, and it just did not work. Um, and it meant that the effects of the, the steroid injection I had to get for the injury just didn't work. So I was in pain constantly, and that made racing really difficult. So what we did for the World Championships was really low-level and low-intensity, um, getting to a, the maximum I got to was like threshold, um, not going any quicker than that but just doing really high intensity slightly shorter sessions on the track um and that worked really really well so obviously it gave me confidence at worlds but i never thought that my times that i did at the world championships like i'd be able to go quicker like i think it was about four or five weeks later and the 100 freestyle the world record that i broke in sheffield was almost two seconds quicker than what i did at worlds it's ridiculous isn't it it's crazy so when when you have like a, your list of PBs, for example, that that time must be in like an asterisk because I, I I've done this time, but it doesn't officially count on the world stage. Like, what time do you enter now for like the next Paralympics in like Paris? Yeah, this is really weird. I was talking to my current coach about it, and because we're entering, I've got a winter national meet coming up, and then we're doing the Northampton meet two weeks after. And I said to him like, "What time do I enter?" And he's like, "Well, because it's it still counts, even though it's not in." Technically, like it's not international level. It does count as a PB. <laughs> it just obviously doesn't yeah. count as a world record. So I'd still enter that quick time. Um, but I'm hoping maybe at trials I might be ready to push on and try and try and beat it. Mm. That'd be a really easy way to confuse some poor commentator at the Paralympics <laughs> yeah. when he's when the world records come up, but your entry time is faster. That'd be a really easy way. They'll be like, "What? What's going on?" It's a glitch. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the target this summer? Because the Worlds are in Manchester. They're in uh, your home country. What's the target? Um, to be honest, just getting to them. <laughs> I think 
for I obviously want to retain my three titles. Um, so I retain them twice now. So I'd really like to do it three times. That'd be really cool. And the aquatic center is the pool that I've been training at for the last seven years. So it's my home pool. Um, I think for me, I've had a bit of a rocky start to this career. I kind of thought that after Tokyo, I might retire just because of how difficult it's been with my shoulder. Um, and obviously I decided that it just kind of reignited my love for sport. I just absolutely love racing and I just don't get to do it much because of my shoulder, which is kind of why I was falling out of love with the sport a little bit. And I was just generally unhappy. Um, but it kind of won. I never want to be beaten by the Chinese girl again. Like, don't want anyone to beat me. That's giving me a massive to go win two worlds and not, not be beaten. I also want to experience the games in a pandemic, not in a pandemic, where there's actually spectators and there's stuff to do in the village and you're not scared about like speaking to anyone in case you become a close contact and get dragged away. Um, yep. So I kind of, I decided to carry on, but obviously like, I've still got these ongoing shoulder issues and last season was better until I got the injury. Um, so I decided, you know, like, why don't I go see a shoulder surgeon, just see exactly what's going on, get a more in detailed scan. Um, and I didn't really get the response I was expecting. And it was probably... It wasn't that long ago, it was a couple of months ago, um, and not even that actually, and I was told that I should immediately retire from swimming. So, oh, wow. So it's okay. kind of made me think about things, and basically like the the issues to my shoulder you, are irreparable. Like It's just something I've got to live with. And he was just basically concerned that if I keep doing high-load overhead activities like swimming, that by the time I get to four years old, that... I won't be able to self-propel or, you know, like I won't have much shoulder function left. So um, it's kind of given me <laughs> something to think about. And, you know, originally I was really upset. I wasn't expecting to be told that I needed to retire immediately. Um, but, you know, we've got a really good team doc and I've been speaking to them, speaking to coaches and other athletes. And I, I don't feel like it's my time. I feel that we can manage this well. Obviously, I've got the advantage of cross-training. And I feel like if we, if we manage it well, I, I think... Hopefully, I can get to Paris. And I mean, my goal has always been to go to a Commonwealth Games. And as a lower class athlete, but they don't put the lower classifications in. So the lowest they go is an S6. Mm -hmm. So unless there happened to be a freestyle event, because you can only swim up one category, unless there was an S6 freestyle event, I don't ever have a chance of competing in one. So I was kind of hoping that I could hold on till 2026 just to see, in case of the odd chance, that there is an S6 women's freestyle event that I could potentially swim up in. Well, let's talk about these Commonwealth Games because, yeah, you didn't get to race this summer, which is uh, it's tough because there really isn't enough events for para swimming. Um, but you decided to volunteer. So, what was that like being at the pool when you've got teammates racing? Was that tough? Um, yeah, it was really, really tough. I mean, for me, like, I'm just a natural racer. Like, I love racing. So, to be on poolside and watch other para swimmers race, but no, I can't, was was really, really tough. Um, so the first two days I actually spent in the crawl room checking athletes in so I didn't have to watch them race. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I think for me, like the biggest thing, like obviously I grew up in Birmingham, my whole sporting career started mm -hmm. in Birmingham, that I wanted to be part of it. Like it's my hometown. I, I wanted to be part of the Commonwealth Games. And obviously if I can't do that in an athlete aspect, then why not, why not volunteer and see what it's about? I think a lot of us are guilty of especially me, because I've had so many issues, especially with shoulders and worrying about fitness and that were big meets. I'd never actually stopped to think about how much volunteers do and how how much of a necessity they are. And I didn't even realise how in an international competition, I got given the best role that there is, which everyone wants um, 
a field of place role for volunteering, but no one gets it. Like you have to volunteer at least 10 times to get this role. And because I'm an athlete, they gave it to me straight away without even questioning. Um, but I didn't realize how important that role is and how like actually how difficult it is to fulfill that role. I was literally going to say that the sport literally relies on volunteers. Otherwise, it just wouldn't work at all. You wouldn't have any judges, no timekeepers, no nothing on Paul's side because, you know, we literally, the sport is run by them. Would you recommend it to others that aren't able to compete to soak up the atmosphere like you did? Oh, definitely. It obviously gives you, especially for young athletes coming up that haven't been to a big event, it will give you the insight into what, how loud it is, what it looks like, how everything's run. Um, I think it's a really big learning curve for other athletes to appreciate how much volunteers do because I, I think we're all guilty of not really knowing or taking the time to actually see how much they do and how much goes into it and it's it's really actually really interesting to see the other side of it and not always just be the athlete. Before we finish this podcast I'm going to ask you kind of a really tough question if the shoulder doesn't hold up is there a future for frame running would you look at doing another sport at the Paralympics? So this is interesting because um, a couple of years ago, when I first started, I was trying to get classified in frame running and I just couldn't because um, the it was it was covered by cerebral palsy sport, which is UK based and CP Israel, which is the international version, basically cerebral palsy sport. Um, and they headed up all the classifications. So they decided that to, they wanted to get it in the Paralympic Games. So they would swap it over to the IPC and British athletics. Well, there was a bit of a miscommunication and they were basically no one was classified for about three years. No, like either side wouldn't classify anyone. And it meant that when they applied for it to be included in Paris, that the IPC refused to put it in because um, there weren't enough people classified. So I got really frustrated because there's all these people that do the sport, but we can't like we weren't classified because no one would classify us. But then they wouldn't put us in the Paralympic Games because there weren't enough of us. So that was quite frustrating. <laughs> oh <my laughs> <God>. Thinking, isn't it? <laughs> um, so we're hoping that obviously because I was hoping to try and be a dual sport athlete at Paris. Mm. That would have been really cool. Um, mm. But no I th you know hopefully it will get put into LA um that's something I want to try but my original plan was actually to do a triathlon after Paris and see if I could do triathlon however I bought a handbike um and a charity called the Be More Bailey Charles Foundation really kindly helped fund that um and unfortunately <laughs> I started to try and use it on rollers while I was in Loughborough and I can probably I can cycle to about 1k until I get a lot of shoulder pain and the sprint distance on a triathlon is 20k <laughs> Oh wow, that's quite far. What? That's a that's a sprint distance. Oh my god. Yeah, that's the shortest the shortest triathlon is this, and it's about seven hundred fifty meter swim, um, a five k push in a racing chair, and then a twenty k bike. So yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Oh jeez. <laughs> but maybe oh, wheelchair wow. racing. We'll see. But I think oh, frame okay. running, obviously, shoulder wise, is much better. And I'm always going to do it. It's something like I can go on dog walks, like places my wheelchair mm -hmm. can't get. I can just generally use it and my biggest passion at the minute is trying to get young kids into it as early as possible because we have a club in Manchester, which is amazing. And I, if I do move, I'd really love to set up my own club in Loughborough. Um, mm. But the difference between a young lad in Birmingham um, who I fundraised to buy a frame for, um, he finally got his frame at the age of eight, but he'd never uh, walked, never had a walker because he can't sit and aided. So the difference between them and the, we've got a couple of four and five year olds in our club in Manchester and that early intervention makes such a massive difference. And obviously not all these kids are going to be athletes, but them being able to go to a sport club, 
experience and everything like everyone else being treated like a normal kid and actually have the benefit of being physically active something that they'd never be able to do these kids can't walk unaided they're pushed around all days they're they're too young to have electric chairs or self-propel so they're fully reliant on everyone and then you get them on a track and they're running laps and I think that is just so important to start at such a, a young age so that's like the main thing I'm really interested in at the minute is trying to get as much awareness for that as possible See, more people need that. Uh, we need more people like you, Tully. More selfless <laughs> people who just want mm. to help young kids who maybe don't have the the financial backing or the you know they, they they're not Seems able to get to places. It's it's yeah everything like that. The credit to everything. I think more people need to get to know you, Tully. Honestly, so thank thank you very much for coming on a podcast. Honestly. <laughs> So we do usually finish our podcast with some quick fire questions for our elite guests. Do you sound up for those? Okay. Um, so what is your favorite event in swimming? 100 freestyle. Uh, who is your swimming idol? Uh, can it be someone who's retired? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was Jazz Carlin. Oh, nice. nice. Uh, what's your proudest moment in swimming? Uh, winning gold in Tokyo, but not just because it was a Paralympic medal, because of everything I went through to get there. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, what's the hardest set you've ever done in training? And I'm mindful that your training probably has to be specially written for you and your disability. Um, back in the day when I was at boarding school, uh, every Monday morning, we either did 3100 freestyle off 115 or 10 400s IM. That's pretty good. That's, that's <laughs> tough. <laughs> Scott couldn't make that. <laughs> nope, not, not a chance. Um, and if you were to go on a road trip, there's three spaces in the car. You can take friends, family, or celebrities. Who would you take with you? It's, it's a completely random question that helps. I think I'd, I'd take list. one celebrity, one member of my family, and one friend. Uh, okay. Have you got any names in mind for the celebrity? Uh... I, pro- I don't really know it wouldn't it wouldn't be an athlete I don't think okay okay so that's someone cool and interesting <laughs> <laughs> so many oh, names isn't it it's always yeah. a tough one put you on the spot <laughs> Tully thank you so much for coming on to this week's episode of the Propulsion Swimming Podcast I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning a lot more about your story this 40-45 minutes has actually just flown by um, yeah. best of luck with the rest of the season hopefully we see you at the world championships later on this or next year next year yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah hopefully the um, the shoulder holds up for you thank you yeah best of luck both in swimming and in frame running as well because it seems like you've got a bit of career in both at the moment so best <laughs> of luck to both of those both of those disciplines and yeah we should definitely keep in touch because it's been great So that just about rounds up this week's episode of the Propulsion Swimming Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so on YouTube, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And me and Dan will be back in one week's time. Yeah, thank you for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you on the next one. You've been listening to the Propulsion Swimming Podcast with Scott and Dan. We want to thank you for joining us and invite you to subscribe to the show as well as checking out the Propulsion Swimming YouTube channel for weekly tutorials and videos to get your swimming fix. We will be back next week. Until then, we'll catch you on the next one.